0: If you listen to this podcast, you stay in touch with the latest developments in education, giving your teaching the edge. ICAEW's BASE competition will give your class the edge too, as they compete against other UK schools, developing valuable employability skills. During BASE, students will apply their knowledge of business, economics, and accountancy to real-life scenarios, and it can be completed during lessons, with plans and resources provided. Register today at ICAEW.com slash BASE.
1: Hello and welcome to the Tez Podagogy podcast. I'm Zofia Niemptis, the Deputy Features Editor here at Tez. And with me today is Pete Etchells, who is a reader in psychology and science communication at Bath Spa University, where he currently researches the long-term and short-term effects of playing video games. Earlier this year, he released a book entitled Lost in a Good Game, Why We Play Video Games and What They Can Do For Us. Hello, Pete.
2: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you very much for coming. So it's a a fascinating topic uh, to be researching and areas to be working in. Can you tell us a little bit about your background as a gamer? Because I understand you do have one.
2: I do, yeah. So I've been playing video games, well, as long as I can remember, really. Um, I remember one of my first consoles, not really a console, but the Atari ST, Mm -hmm. which is a brilliant thing. I I was probably about three or four at the time, probably playing games that I shouldn't have been playing at that age, but never mind, it was, it was all good fun. Um, and yeah, I've just, uh, it's something that I've done all my life since then, really. And and when I was writing the book, I didn't really think so much about how games had had an impact on my life up until that point. And when I started writing it, I sort of really started interrogating why I was playing different games at different times in my life and how they were maybe helping me. Um, with different things that had happened.
1: Yeah, I saw. So you you reference in the book um, sort of turning to books as uh, to, books, <laughs> to games <laughs> as a, a coping mechanism through sort of like difficult emotional times. How do you think they help?
2: It's a really good question, and I don't think there's a universal answer for everybody. I think it, it depends on who you are, and it depends on what games you play, and what else is going on in your life around you. Um, but. From my own personal experience, I found that some games have just helped me, um, just give me a little bit of space, I guess, just to process things that are happening around me. So one thing that I talk about a lot in the book is the death of my dad, um, and he had motor neurone disease. Um, and when he was first diagnosed, you know, we had this big conversation around what it was and the tests that he'd been having and what it, what it maybe meant for the next few years and I was about 11 when that happened, and it was just too big. It was a massive thing, and I just had to go away for a little bit and do something else, and I guess that's the same for a lot of people, but the do something else for me was to play video games for a bit, just to let my brain have that little space to figure out what the hell had just happened.
1: Yeah. Um, That doesn't tend to be the way that gaming is presented in the media. We, as (laughs) as you know, uh, yeah, we've got this huge kind of moral panic around gaming at the minute. Uh, why do you think that is?
2: That's another really good question and it's something that I've really thought about over the past few years because I, I don't think there's a simple answer to it. I think part of it is that if you don't play video games, if you watch somebody playing them, it looks like a really jarring experience, right? It looks like they're completely absorbed by this thing and... There's nothing else that's relevant to them around them and all those sorts of things. So it looks as though it's not good for you. It's unwholesome in some way. Of course, you know, if you're actually playing the games, you might be talking to people around the world or playing with friends and stuff. So it's a very different social experience. So I think that's one of the things. I think also... It's quite hard to get into games if you want to, so something that we talk about quite a lot at the minute is how do we navigate conversations around, you know, if your kids play video games but you don't, Mm -hmm. how do you facilitate those interactions so that you can help them find the right sorts of games to play as it were. and that's, that's an easy conversation to have if, say, we were talking about books or movies. So, you know, if you've never watched a movie before, all you need to do is turn the TV on and sit down and watch something, right? And if it's a rubbish movie that you don't get, all you need to do to fix that is find a different movie and sit down and watch it. The barrier to entry is really low. If you want to start getting into video games for reasons, say, other than you're interested in playing them, you know, you want to kind of navigate these sorts of... Um, parental conversations maybe um, let's say you buy a playstation 4 and you pull it out of the box you untangle all of the wires you plug it into your tv you turn it on needs to connect to the wi-fi so you find your wi-fi code connect it to that and then it starts downloading an update and it looks like it's broken and that happens for like two hours and then it's finally downloaded the update and then then you can put the game in put the game in to download an update for the game that can take like two hours then you've got to try and figure out how to use the controller and all of that happens before you even actually start playing the game right mm. so then you're playing the game and you're going to be rubbish at it the first time you play it and it takes time to get to a point where you're good enough at it that it becomes an enjoyable immersive experience so that barrier to entry for playing games is really high um, and obviously that's going to put off a lot of people i think as well it's like many things, something that came out of counterculture. Mm. So there was a very um, big um, underground movement, as it were, around video games in the the 70s and 80s that didn't kind of align with mainstream sensibilities. So you put all of these things together uh, and couple it with things like the World Health Organization saying gaming disorder is now a thing, Mm. essentially in, in the absence of any other public engagement around that announcement and inevitably what's going to happen is the newspapers will fill the void and what they'll do is they'll find the most popular video game that's around at the minute, Fortnite, they'll find pronouncements that games are addictive and that's where you get headlines saying that Fortnite's an addictive game.
1: So I was just going to come onto this, so I've got a nephew who plays Fortnite I won't say addictively, but every second that he possibly can. And we, my sister and I tried to um, to do that whole like parental engagement mm. thing. So we tried to play. And there's this really funny video of us uh, with just my nephew being like, auntie, why are you shooting at the sky all the time? Because we were just like, we were so, so <laughs> bad at fortnight. Um, but we've talked about this a lot because it does feel it's it's such a huge part of his life. And maybe yeah. addiction is the wrong word, but it's a lot. Mm. Like what? Yeah, how, can parents, how should parents be looking at games like Fortnite that do seem to be yeah, taking up a lot of time?
2: So I think one of the annoying things that came out of this big announcement around gaming disorder is that if you look at the science behind it, actually, we don't really know how many people are addicted to video games but it's going to be a very, very, very low number. Mm. So the first thing to say is that you know if you're worried about your kids playing video games, chances are they're probably not addicted to it that's all well and good for me to say and you go oh, okay it's fine they're not addicted but you know I'm still having these annoying conversations with them trying to get them to stop playing games um, that's a really hard um, discussion to navigate around really We've certainly from the scientific research base we've not got much that can help mm. at the minute there's, there's some evidence that suggests that How you frame conversations around video games can be quite helpful. So rather than taking an authoritarian approach and saying you're only allowed two hours of video game play per day, uh, that's the rule and we're going to stick to it. If you don't stick to it, everything's going in the bin. Um, What you tend to find is that if you ask kids, you know, how would you react to this sort of situation, they tend to say that they'd rebel against it, which is what kids do, um, but worryingly they'd hide their tech use. So they'd still do things online, but they wouldn't, they conceal it from the parents, and that's a situation that we really don't want to get into. If you frame the conversation around, say, saying things like, "Well, this is this is what I feel about these games or this technology. Um, why do you want to play them? What do you get out of it?" Um, you know, and have a bit more of a collegiate, collaborative conversation with um, kids where they feel as though they're equal partners in that conversation. The research is out there so far; it's not much, but it tends tends to show that you know they're still going to rebel because they're kids. Um, but they're much less likely to hide their tech use. So it's all about kind of managing those expectations, I think. Mm-hmm. Other than that, we've really not got much in the way of advice. You know, I'd love to be able to say the research suggests that you should have no more than an hour of Fortnite per day, but it doesn't It doesn't say that. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that hard time limits on these things tend to backfire. So I think in the case of something like Fortnite, I mean, I, I don't think Fortnite's a particularly good game, to be honest. <laughs> you know, when I play it, I kind of... it, it it acts more of a, a marathon simulator for me more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So I always forget to jump out of the bus. So I'm at the edge of the map and I just run for about 20 minutes towards the centre of the map and then get shot. <laughs> and that's, that's my Fortnite gaming experience. It's very unfulfilling. Um, but, you know, I got playing Fortnite, started playing Fortnite about a year ago just to see what all the fuss mm. was about. And I think that's... That's something where having the advantage of bringing, being brought up playing games offers me you know, I can I can pick up a console and I know how to work it and I know how to download a game and get into it. I'm you know, fairly familiar with how control systems work. So I can pick it up and try and figure out what this game is actually about fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, my feeling is that we've got a generation of parents that are starting to grow up who are in a similar sort of position right so they've they've also grown up playing video games and they're able to maybe navigate those sorts of conversations a little bit more uh, knowingly as it were um but you know there's still a lot of work going on in this sort of area about what what kind of would constitute good guidelines useful guidelines for for video game use i think another thing that gets lost in these conversations sometimes is that all video games have ratings age Mm. ratings in the same way that movies have ratings right and very often for reasons that I'm not quite clear on maybe it's because games are always seen as a childish thing um, where somebody might really strictly adhere to movie ratings they don't do the same with video game Mm -hmm. ratings when you know they are there for a reason so I think a lot a wider awareness and appreciation of those rating systems and, and, and why they're in place, I think, would help with these conversations as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember that. What's the rating on Call of Duty? Was it eighteen?
2: Yeah, I think so. It's uh, I can't remember. the. It's either 16 or 18. Yeah, yeah.
1: because I, when I was a teacher, I there would just be the day that Call of Duty came out mm. where there would just be so many kids absent or asleep at their desk because they just stayed up all night playing it. Yeah. It was so obviously not for their aid, but there was no even there was not even a question that they wouldn't play Call of Duty. It's like, well, of course you will because that's the game. that's
2: coming out. It's it's really hard, isn't it? Those sorts of um situations because it's not just as simple as saying, you know, this you can take a bunch of fourteen year olds. This is an eighteen rated game. You can't play it because it might be the case that they've got all the siblings or their parents play them, and then they can get their hands on them that way. And these things will inevitably kind of filter through to um to lower age groups. But I think. Yeah, we we don't really see that so much with um, movies now, for instance, because there are these stricter enforcement rules around them. And I think, you know, nothing's going to change overnight, um, but a shift towards appreciating those a little bit more and a, a wider understanding of um, of these sorts of games and and other sorts of games that might be more appropriate for them to play, I think, is a useful tactic as well. So, you know, one approach is to say, you know, if you know a lot about video games. And your child comes along and says, you know, I really want to play Call of Duty. You say, well, I don't think it's an appropriate game for you for these sorts of reasons. Why don't we play this instead? And you can come up with something that's comparable in terms of interest and competitiveness, more age appropriate, something that you can play with them, that they can play with their friends as well, you know, like Rocket League or something like that. Um and you can kind of deflect them, so it's not just that you're not allowing something, but you're providing something in its place.
1: So on the, um, the inappropriate games topic, I think that links in to, again, this kind of moral panic idea of, like, games. If you play violent games, therefore you, you will become violent. And I know that the research, <laughs> just <laughs> for the listeners, think he's got his head in his hands. Um, yeah, tell us about the link between video, violent video games and violent behaviour.
2: It's tiny, it's weak, it's really not worth worrying about, I don't think. So this, this is... It's something that has captured the attention of psychologists for about 30 years. I would say about ninety percent of research, psychological research in, in into video games, covers this topic. I oh. think because it's so salient and it's so divisive. But it's also, I feel like it's deflected away from more interesting questions that we could have been asking asking about video games. E- even the basic things about why why we play them, what motivates us to play them. There is some good research out there. Not much though, which is quite hard and annoying when. The tagline for my book was "Why We Play Video <laughs> Games," because I think people are so focused on this, and I get why they're focused on it. Because what happens is that you have these mass acts of societal violence, usually in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And when something like that happens, it's human nature to want to try and find a reason behind it, right? So you delve into the um, the perpetrator's past, and because lots of people play video games, it will crop up at some point. So. Um, and then those kind of causal influences are made, usually in the media. Um, so on the one hand, you know you can argue and I think it's right to argue that trying to figure out whether there are there are some people out there for whom if they play a certain type of video game under certain conditions, they're at higher risk of hurting themselves or hurting somebody else is an important question to ask. It's an important societal question. Um, the problem comes in terms of how you actually try and tackle that question in the lab so if you think about basic psychological experiment setup probably what you do is get two groups of people who are fairly comparable mm-hmm. give one of them a violent game to play one of them a non-violent game to play and then you test them on some sort of measure of aggression or violence afterwards you want to see whether the only thing that's different between those two groups is the type of game that they played does it have an effect on their aggression levels or violence levels Now, if we're asking that in the context of um, are they going to go out and shoot people, then it might be the case that what you want to do is your aggression measure or violence measure is stick them all in a room with each other with a gun and see how many people survive. (laughs) Ethically, that's a little bit dubious. (laughs) So what we have to do as psychologists is come up with proxy measures of aggression where we can make sure that our participants are safe, they're not at risk of harm, but we're still measuring something that maybe looks like aggression in some way. And this is where the problem starts, right? Because how do you get something that looks like these things that we're worried about in the real world, but isn't actually going to hurt somebody in the lab? There are some measures out there. They're not particularly good. So probably the most widely used one. I'm going to nerd out for a second. I apologize. Um, It's called the competitive reaction time task. Mm -hmm. So people play the video game, whichever one it is. And then you say to them, OK, we're going to play a different game now. I'm going to plonk you in a room in in the university on your own at a computer. There's somebody else in, in another room, somewhere else in the university, at, at a computer, and you're going to play a reaction time game. So something's going to pop up on the screen, as soon as you see it, press the space bar. And if you press it before the other person, you win. If they press it before you, you lose. And whoever wins gets to punish their opponent, so they get to blast them with a loud noise, and they get to choose how long the, the, the blast loud lasts for and how loud it is. The other person doesn't exist. It's all controlled by the computer. Right. And the aggression measure is you know, you're know you being more aggressive if you blast the other person for, for a longer period of time and with a louder noise. The trouble is because you've got two variables there, loudness and duration, which do you pick as mm-hmm. your aggression measure? Um, and there's upwards of about 150 studies in this area, not just on video games, but look, using looking at this um, in terms of aggression generally. About 150 papers out there around about 180 ways in which people analyze the data. Mm -hmm. So some people take the mean duration, some people take the mean loudness, mean duration times the mean loudness, mean duration times the root of the, so on and so forth. Um, There was a study that came out a few years ago that showed that if you take our data set and analyze it in all the different ways you can see in the literature, then you can basically find whatever you want. You can find very strong effects showing that video games do cause aggression, Mm -hmm. or you can find null effects showing that there's no link whatsoever. And that's all to do with what you do with the data, it's not to do with the data itself. It's all down to the decisions that you make as a researcher about how you're going to run your study, um, rather than an actual signal in the data that you're getting from the participants. So we kind of got into this situation with that research literature where, you know, if you see a particular researcher's name who has a past history of publishing research showing that video games do cause aggression, you don't need to look at the rest of the paper, you know what that paper's gonna say. Um, so on the face of it you do a a quick Google search for this sort of stuff and it shows that there's a lot of evidence that violent video games cause aggression, actually if you drill down into it and look at the quality of the evidence the best research that we have out there that tries to make all of the data openly available, pre-registers the work so they kind of declare in advance what they're going to do and how they're going to treat their data before they actually collect it, all of that sort of work tends to show that there are weak associations between playing violent games and measures of aggression but they're so small as to not worry about really
1: could it also be a bit chicken and egg like maybe if you're having aggressive feelings you might be like i'm gonna go and shoot someone in call of duty rather than
2: yeah yeah so in terms of theories around what's going on here there are there are different ones so one argues that if you play a violent video game, it activates violent thoughts in your mind. So then if you go out into the street and bump into somebody, you're more likely to punch them. Yeah. So that's one model. Another model is that you know you have a rubbish day at work, you're feeling really annoyed, you go home, you play Call of Duty for a bit and let off some steam, and actually you become less aggressive. Yeah. That sort of study so is called the catharsis model. That sort of model seems to tie in with um, data that we've got at a general level looking at things like acts of uh violent crime and murder and things those things have been declining since mm. the 1970s um so if you're expecting that video games are making everybody more aggressive you'd expect that that you know it, it should be going up and it's not Now it might be the case that if if video games are making people aggressive that the rate of decline would have been quicker if mm. if we didn't have them but you know they're going down, so it's it's clearly not having a, a strong positive effect on 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 violent tendencies. Um, there are there are some neat studies that tend to show that if you if you look at when certain high-profile video games like Grand Theft Auto V and um, some of the Call of Duty games are released, you see a. Um, so if you kind of look at uh, violent Crimes and things like that in the context of when those games come out, mm-hmm. then there's a, a lag of about a month. So a game comes out, and about a month later, crime crime levels drop. So you know, I'm not saying that those games stop people from <laughs> committing violent crimes, but what we what we might expect if video games do cause aggression is the opposite sorts mm-hmm. of effects. So. That's the trouble with this sort of stuff, right? Mm. So you're always looking for kind of proxy measures of the thing that you actually care about. And because in some cases with experimental work, there's flexibility in the way that you can look at that. um, The biases that we have as researchers going into that research need to be taken into account. And it's why we've not got a clear, definitive answer yet.
1: Mm. I saw um, you worked on a study around anxiety and depression and screen time. And had a kind of similar conclusion that there's, you know, there is there seems to be a weak link, but nothing, like definite. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, is there anything there useful that we can take away for, for teachers and parents
2: in terms of screen time generally? Yeah. That's that's a, a big, so that's such a bigger conversation to have than video games. Um, I think the first thing to say is that screen time is a meaningless concept. <laughs> Um, it's what what is screen time it's well it's the amount of time that we spend in front of a computer or a um, smartphone or a tablet each day Um, it's an an attractive measure for researchers because you get a number out of it Mm -hmm. right and you can do interesting things with simple numbers it's useless for researchers in the sense that you know if you have if you take two children and they both have three hours of screen time each. One of them is spending that time playing a video game with the parents or watching a TV show with them for a bit or using the internet to do some research for a piece of homework. And the other one is spending an hour and a half on Instagram um, obsessing over their body image. Mm -hmm. Um, They're going onto the internet to see if they can download an essay because they've not done the work for tomorrow. Those two people in a scientific study would be classed as the same, the three hours of screen time. But you would imagine that those situations, those contexts would have very, very different effects. So I think there is a move now in research to to move away from this sort of generalised idea of screen time and really try and drill down into what we mean by that. Even things like social media are relatively meaningless, right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, I was thinking about this when I was listening to radio four the other day. They were saying something like, you know, if you go on social media, the conversations are, um, are an absolute dumpster fire. Um, and I was like, in my head, that means Twitter,
1: mm.
2: right? But social media is Instagram, it's Facebook, it's Snapchat, and you know, that kind of conversation, that that sort of argument doesn't work when you think about other ones. You know, if if, if in your head you equate social media with Instagram, that just that that argument just doesn't fly. It's really hard to do this. It's really hard to separate out how much time do you spend on Instagram doing what with how much time do you spend on Twitter doing what and then look at the relative effects of that, Um, which, again, is why you get such a diverse um, range of opinions from the scientific literature. But I know I'm dodging the question here because you asked, you 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 know, what what can we do about that? What what can we do to sort of navigate these conversations? Um, Again, it's, I think it's about... Not being authoritative about these sorts of things. Um, Certainly in the home, you know, again, there's not much evidence to suggest that um, hard and fast authoritarian limits on screen time really do anything other than push its use underground. Um, I think it's more about educating everybody around what these things can be used for as a force for good versus what the things are that we should be Worried about or kind of um, avoid, and you know that means kind of educating kids about what what social media is and when it's age appropriate, and um, you know the fact that they don't need an Instagram account at ten years old. Mm -hmm. Um, But also talking to parents about how best to kind of keep checks on what what they're actually doing with their 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 screen time use, Um, and if if they feel as though it's unhealthy in some way, rather than just shutting everything down, thinking about how you can shift it into other. Maybe more useful pursuits. So, yeah, that might be you know shifting people away from social media and onto video games, where you can do it as a family event mm-hmm. and actually enjoy it. Um, I always try and take a, an evidence-based approach with stuff like that. So, um, unfortunately, we, we're not really there with anything at the minute. It's really it, it's so hard to do this stuff. In part because science moves at a relatively glacial speed and the rate at which we're interacting with this sort of technology and the rate at which it changed is so fast, we're always playing catch up. Um, So we need to be a little bit smarter about how we do that in terms of thinking about what the issue is going to be in two years time or three years time and how can we head those off at the pass. But we're not quite there with it yet. So I'm kind of always slightly reluctant to say this is what people should be doing because to be honest I don't really know.
1: But I think it's nice that you you touched on the, the force for good element because I feel like we've been quite negative. Yeah. Um, so one uh, element that I was really interested in, in your book was this whole kind of stereotype of the like isolated, pasty white nerd.
2: <laughs> um,
1: and you're actually saying that games can be these hugely social spaces. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So I think this is one of the great misunderstandings about video games is that they're a socially isolating experience. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was true... Thirty years ago, maybe i 'm not convinced it was massively, but it 's certainly not the case now. you know most video games are played online uh, with other people um, and you can interact with them as a result and i 'm not saying that every interaction is a positive one you know there 's a, there's a really important debate to have be had about. Um, toxic online behaviours and toxic interactions between people in video games. But to be honest, I think that conversation extends beyond video games. Mm. It's about any online interactions. What you do get with video games is that when people play something online, they immediately all share a common interest with each other, which is that game that you're playing. Um, So it's quite easy to make friends online. I've been playing a game called World of Warcraft for 10 years now, Mm. Um, and there's a little guild that I'm in of about five or six people who I've never met in real life but we're really close friends you know I've talked to them on Skype before so I know that they are real people and not Russian bots Um, and we know quite a lot about each other and I partly play that game when I can nowadays not to play the game really but to go and talk to them um, because they're the people that I like chatting to, and you know, just even just at the end of the day, just going, oh, you know, how's your day been? Oh, rubbish. Sure, you want going to go and kill this monster? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so it's just it's just a nice kind of welcoming experience, and you know, there've been times where I've not been able to play the game for like three or four months. And I've sort of disappeared for a bit. And when I've come back, um, Dave, who's the leader of the Guild, he's always like, "Ah, oh, Pete, it's great to see you. I've collected all this stuff for you while you've been away. And I just get bombarded with all these really cool things. And there's <laughs> this really nice kind of atmosphere. And those are the sorts of stories that you miss mm. in the, the big news stories about video games melting kids' brains or, or being addictive, that actually they can be this force for social good that rather than being something that socially isolates us, they, they can be a really strong medium through which we can connect with each other.
1: Yeah, that's great. And in terms of the, the educational benefit of games, because I think, again, it's that stereotype of like, we're just wasting your time, you know, <laughs> shooting, whatever, or like, getting get with the <laughs> guild. But um obviously, there is a strong argument. And, the, you know, there's a huge variety of games. Uh, there's a lot that can be gained from playing them.
2: Yeah. So one thing that I don't do in the book is talk about the positive effects of video games in terms of the cognitive psychology research in that so there are some studies out there that show things like um, people who play action video games have um, faster reaction times or more um, accurate spatial navigation skills or motor control and things like that um, I think like with the problems that we have with the whole violent games and aggression question there are potentially similar problems there, so one thing that I didn't say about the violent games and aggression question is so we said that aggression's a problem But how do you define your violent and non-violent video games as well? So you might say, well, our violent group might play Call of Duty and our non-violent group might play Candy Crush Saga, right? But those two games differ in ways other than one being violent and one not violent. Mm -hmm. One's a 3D first-person shooter, the other's a puzzle, one's fast-paced, one's slow-paced, one's competitive online, one's a single-player game. So if you see any differences between those groups, it might be because of one of those other things that's going on. Similar sort of issue when it comes to looking at the positive effects, how you match up Mm -hmm. different games so that you can be sure that you say, well, it's this aspect of video games that leads to an improvement in this area. It's a very difficult thing to do. And I think a a good example of an area where that's gone wrong, basically, is in brain training games. Mm. So a few years ago, there was this big explosion in this idea that, you know, if you play a few games where you add up sums and stuff for a few minutes each day, you will become smarter. I think in some cases, people were claiming that it will stave off dementia, Mm. things like that. There's no evidence that that works whatsoever. So there's a big study that was done in 2011 where you get people to play a game that tests a particular cognitive skill. Um, so you get them to do that at the start of the experiment. And then for the next six weeks, they got them to do a different game that tests the same skill. Just practice on it every day. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the six weeks, you go back to the original game and see whether testing on a different game has improved their scores or not. So what you find is that over the six weeks, people get better at the game that they're playing. Mm-hmm. And when you test them on the original game, they're the same. So those those skills don't seem to transfer beyond um, beyond the game that you're playing itself and a lot of companies who've made quite um, strong claims about if you play brain training apps um, it will improve your school grades mm. have, have got in trouble in the US and have been um, fined millions of dollars for making those claims without any evidence base behind them so in terms of those sorts of um, positive effects you know I'm a little bit cagey about the extent to which we can claim that there's anything strong there um I can't remember what the other part of the question was. So. <laughs>
1: uh, no, just the, the the other benefits, I think, the kind of the other force for good elements of computer games.
2: Yeah, so when people say, oh, you know, you're playing video games, why aren't you going outside instead and doing something better with your time? Um, two things about that. One is that um, there's an inherent assumption that video games are an unhealthy or unwholesome in and of themselves which is not true and the second thing is that going outside is better than staying inside which again for a lot of people depending on where you are is not true so if you can find games that are culturally meaningful or they speak to you on a personal level then they they can be quite powerful experiences so one of the benefits that I talk about in terms of that aspect of video games in the book is their ability to allow us to explore I say in a kind of quite grandiose way what it means to be human, which I don't actually think means anything. Um, What I kind of specifically mean is that it allows us to explore different facets of human emotions in a relatively safe space. So one of the examples that I give in the book is a game that I played last year called Firewatch. Which is a beautiful game And I would recommend that everybody plays it It's a first person perspective game mm. um, And the backstory Is that it's set in the late 1980s, you play a guy called Henry Who is going through some difficulties At home, his wife has been diagnosed With early onset dementia He's not taken it very well Her parents have got involved to take her home And he deals with it by running off To the woods, so he, he runs off to Shoshone National Forest in Wyoming And becomes a fire lookout. And I won't spoil the rest of the, 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 um, the story because um, it's, it turns into kind of a, a little bit of a murder mystery who done it kind of um, game, which is quite good. Um, but you don't meet anybody else in, in, the, uh, in the game. You're just in this wilderness, this really beautiful wilderness on your own for as long as you want to be. And the only interaction you have with somebody else is through a walkie talkie. Um, and you interact with somebody called Delilah, who's another fire lookout at another tower a few miles away and a lot of the game is just having banal conversations with her really so you can choose to completely open up about what's gone wrong in your life or you can be really cagey and cold and distant at one point you can start choosing to flirt with delilah or you can maintain a platonic relationship and i've played it through a few times and tried different routes and and nothing that you do has an impact on what the end of the the game is Mm. like it will always end in the same sort of way and you kind of think well what's the point you know it doesn't matter what I say it doesn't what's the point in doing this then and what I found was that actually you can start exploring what it's like to have these sorts of interactions with somebody else and how they respond in this space where I'm not actually flirting with somebody else or I'm not actually opening up my deepest darkest secrets with somebody else um, and I think the, the anecdote that I mentioned in the story is that in the, in the book is that I, one of the times that I played played it through I started flirting with Delilah and she started flirting back and then I started going oh my god, Henry, what are you doing? You're married. And your wife's really ill. Yeah, Henry.
1: Why are you being,
2: why are you being so horrible? <laughs> and I felt really guilty. So then in the next set of uh, conversations with her, I started pulling back. And then she rightly got annoyed with me. And, but, you know, that's an interesting mm. set. It, it kind of allows you to sort of figure out where your own moral compass is. You know, we all say, you know, I'd like to say, you know, I, I'm definitely up kind of person who would flirt with somebody else. Actually, I've tried it in a game, and I know that I'm not the kind of person that would do that because it was a horrible experience. So that ability to explore those sorts of things, and there's a lot of games coming out at the minute that allow us to explore um, grief and what it means to lose somebody. And the interesting thing that I find about that is that I can think of about three or four different games that all explore it in different ways. And none of them go through that tidal trope of thinking about uh, bargaining and acceptance and depression mm. and all of those things, which is nonsense. There's no evidence that we go through five stages of grief. Um, but they explore them in quite emotionally nuanced and complex ways. You know, I've come out of a couple of those games in absolute floods of tears but felt better for the experience Mm. afterwards because it's made me kind of evaluate my own relationship with loss so i think there are this really really powerful medium that allows us to do that and the way that they allow us to do that is that um, and I, I'm going to steal some quotes from Naomi Alderman here. So she talks about this idea that you know if you if you watch a movie, then you can be uh, you can relate to the main character. Yeah. You can uh, be happy for them when something ha- happens to them that's good, or you can be sad for them, or you can feel angry about what they've done but in a video game you are the main character so you can it's only in a video game really where you can be held responsible for your actions emotionally it's only video games that make you feel guilty for your actions or make you feel a real sense of achievement when you've done something good and i think it's that power that is such a force for potential force for good with them
1: yeah and also i guess a potential force for I think maybe it's that power that is scaring people because it's so personal. Yeah,
2: yeah, it could go either way, which is why you kind of have to navigate these conversations around how they're used and in what context really carefully.
1: Yeah, Fantastic. And so I guess the big final question, uh, which I feel like we kind of touched on, but if there is anything that teachers and parents should take away from this discussion around the idea of video games, what should it be?
2: Not to be scared of them, really. Um, I think... If you don't play video games, I think it's useful to try and try them out a little bit, just to kind of figure out what's what the fuss is about. Really, there's some really interesting initiatives around schools at the minute. So the British Esports Association has been holding some championships through the year, and, and basically what they've been doing is setting up teams in schools. Um, so they, the, the teams will have a student who's a manager, and then others who are the actual players on the on the team. Um, and they go through kind of training sessions and things like that. It's basically an after-school club. Mm. It's all gearing up to uh, an in-school championship. And they've done a little bit of an evaluation of that um, for the first time that they did it last year. And one of the interesting things for me that came out of that was that it seemed to provide an outlet for some students who aren't traditionally kind of sports-minded, say. So kids who want to feel part of something at school, but maybe there's no Mm. club for them, who like video games can get into this, and then there's a real, real sense of community around that. Um, it's also got it's got the added advantage of um, um, kids who have disabilities can get involved with without any barriers, re- relatively speaking, which is great. So there's some interesting stuff around some children at uh, alternative provision schools who um, have really opened up, and it seems to have made them more engaged with their um, with their subjects um, as well through having this motivation to do something that's fun. So I think games can unlock um, different relationships that, that teachers have with their pupils because maybe it makes them look a bit more human if you as a teacher say, oh, I play this game. Mm-hmm. That's another thing that's come out of the, the kind of championship evaluation is that some uh, teachers who've um, had maybe antagonistic relationships with some of the students in their classes, that's been completely flipped around when they found that they've got this common interest. Um, so it provides another avenue for exploring how to improve those sorts of relationships as well um, that's not to say that you know everybody should be playing video games all the time and not doing anything else I'm going to mm. cop out here and say <laughs> you know, like everything in life it's everything in moderation right. but I don't think that they're the big bad that we often make them out to be and we shouldn't be worried too much about I think if we worry excessively about every video game experience being a potentially addictive one then what we risk doing that Going, doing that and going down that route is, is sort of over-regulating them mm. either at a national level or individually in terms of how we, um, how we allow our kids to, to use them um, and then if we do that we potentially miss out on the, all of those potential uh, positive benefits that they've got
1: okay, Thank you so much Pete, uh, really really interesting uh, Pete's book uh, Lost in a Good Game Why We Play Video Games and What They Can Do For Us is out now uh, Thank you very much for listening and we'll be back next time
0: If you listen to this podcast, you stay in touch with the latest developments in education, giving your teaching the edge. ICAEW's BASE competition will give your class the edge too, as they compete against other UK schools, developing valuable employability skills. During BASE, students will apply their knowledge of business, economics and accountancy to real-life scenarios, and it can be completed during lessons, with plans and resources provided. Register today at ICAEW.com slash BASE.